Well, good morning to everybody. Um, our passage today is going to be in Matthew chapter 12. And we're going to begin reading in verse 38 in just a moment. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 38. And the text that we're going to look at today is very near and dear to my heart because it's actually a passage that God used when He was calling me to preach. And this is kind of an odd story. I've, I know I've told it here before, but I know some of you probably haven't heard it. So even if you have, well, you're going to hear it again because I like it. So I'll tell it again. When I was 16 years old, God called me to preach, and, and I'd always grown up in church. I I got saved when I was nine, and so uh, everything, you know, life is pretty normal for the most part. But then when I was 16 years old, and in uh, in September's when he when I finally surrendered to preach, but around that time he began to work on my heart, and and I I don't know how to describe it. It was like a just a heavy heavy burden, and the closest thing I could liken it to is like when I was under conviction whenever I hadn't been, you know, when I needed to get saved. And boy, my heart was just so heavy and I tried to figure out what I was what I'd done wrong and, and I was I was praying and asking God for some direction to tell me what was happening. And very early on, back in the back of my mind, God said you need to preach. And I thought, well that's not it. It's really something else because I I was I was pretty backward and, and I'm, I'm pretty backward still but I was much more so back then. I, it made me physically ill to get up in front of people and talk. It, it was it was bad, and so I knew that that could not be what God wanted for my life. And so I kind of pushed that to the side. God, what's going on? What's going on? I would pray and I prayed and I prayed. I was repenting of everything I could think of, even things I didn't think I'd done. I was still repenting, trying to get God to 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 let let up on me. And finally, one day, I decided I'm going to open the Bible. That's a good idea, God. I'm just going to open the Bible in, in just a random place. And this is not a good way to find out God's will, but I, I did it anyway. I said, but God, I'm just going to open the Bible, and the first verse I look at, you you give me a sign about what, what is going on. What do you want me to do? And so I closed my eyes, I opened up the Bible. First verse I looked at, an evil and adulterous generation will seek for a sign and not get one. Oh, well, God, that I must have looked at the wrong verse. Let me find another one. So... I think God has a sense of humor, and and anyway, uh, through the process of time, I did figure out that was in fact what He was calling me to do. But but this verse or this quote, uh, an evil and adulterous generation will ask for a sign and not get one. That comes in the conver- in the conversations He's having with some some religious leaders, and what they're wanting Him to do is they're seeking a sign to prove that Jesus is who He says that He is, and they said, "Prove to us, give us a sign." that shows who you are, and he says you're not going to get one like you're wanting. The only sign that you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. And that's what we're going to focus on today, the sign of Jonah. And this is in keeping with our series that we've been doing on Sunday School Sermons because this instance isn't really uh, an instance that you learn about in Sunday School too much. But last week, you remember, we looked at Jonah chapter 1 and how he ran from God. Well, in in, uh, uh, chapters 2 and 3, which we'll not actually read today, uh, in chap- at the end of chapter 1, the big fish swallows Jonah. Chapter 2 has him praying to God. He, he finally repents. He decides he's going to do what God's called him to do. And, uh, and then he's, uh, he's floating around out in the fish for three days and three nights. God causes the, the fish to get sick of him. He spits him out on dry land. We don't know where. I think it's probably somewhere around Joppa would be my guess because that's where he got on the boat to go to Tarsus to begin with. And I kind of think maybe the fish spit him right out around there saying, okay, try it again. Anyway, we, we don't know that. That's just my guess. So, chapter 2 ends that way. He goes out 
to Nineveh in chapter 3, he doesn't preach repentance. He says, 40 days and Nineveh's going to fall. 40 days and God's going to judge Nineveh. Well, the Ninevites, starting with the king on down, they all hear Jonah, they believe him, and they repent. Now, Jonah never says repent. He just says judgment's coming. They repent, and uh, and chapter 3 kind of ends on that note. The, the whole city... Man and beast, everybody from the king all the way down to the poorest person is fasting, repenting. They're, they're turning back to God. Now, Jesus takes this, this whole incident with the fish and then the repentance and he uses it as a major teaching point. It actually comes up several times in the Gospels. So I want us to look at what Jesus says. And as we do this, I want you to see that unbelief is inexcusable and one day those who are who un our unbelievers will be held accountable for it. So look if you would at Matthew chapter 12 and verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with just this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with, the, with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live in, and live there. And the last state of the man becomes worse than the first. This is the way it will be, and it will also be, with this evil generation. Now, I, the overarching theme here is that, is that these scribes and Pharisees are unbelievers. They are unbelieving. And, and they're, they're guilty of this. And, and he calls them, he says, an evil and adulterous generation will, craves for a sign. Now, obviously, these scribes and Pharisees are not the whole generation. It's, it, but, but what he's talking about, he's saying that these people, these religious leaders, are symbolic. They are a symbolic representation of the whole generation that he came to. You, know, you remember the Bible says that Jesus came in, uh, unto his own and what? His own received him not. He came to, his, to, to the Jewish people. He came to the, his generation, but they did not believe on him. And these scribes and Pharisees were just a picture of that. They were, they were just a, a small sampling of the, of the culture in which he lived. And he says that you are just like all the other people around. For the most part, you are unbelieving. You want a sign, but one's not going to be given to you. And I want, I want you to notice that there's a difference between doubt and unbelief. Sometimes we use those words interchangeably, but they're not the same. Because doubt is when you're not sure. Say, well, I feel like God's doing this, but I just don't know. I feel like God is wanting me to do this, but I just don't know. I think this is the case. I'm just not sure. And then you follow the evidence wherever it leads. But unbelief is not like that. Unbelief is a willing disbelieving despite the evidence. It's a decision. Unbelief is whenever somebody shows you something, but you say... I don't believe it anyway. I've, I've told my kids at school they'll come up and they'll, they'll tell me some big yarn about something that somebody did or whatever. And I'll, I say, I don't believe anything I hear and only half of what I see. Well, 
this this idea of unbelief, it doesn't believe anything it hears, and it doesn't believe anything that it sees unless it fits with what they already think. Now these these Jewish leaders, they were unbelieving. And they said, if you'll notice in, in verse 38, they said, we want to see a sign from you. And the word sign means an attesting miracle. They wanted Jesus to do some magnificent feat that would show them He really was the Messiah. He really was the Son of God. But do you think it would have helped? No. And I'll tell you why. At this point, whenever they said this, here's what they already had. They had the virgin birth. They had the events of His baptism. You remember what happened? Jesus came up out of the water. The, the, the heavens opened. You remember there was a dove that came down. A voice out of heaven. God Himself spoke and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Uh, they had the, the water turned into wine, the cleansing of a leper right after the Sermon on the Mount. He healed the centurion's servant. Uh, he, uh, you remember he healed uh, Peter's mother-in-law. And then once word got out about that, basically everybody in the city that was sick and demon-possessed came to him and he healed them. They're the gathering demoniacs. Those guys that were always running around Stark naked, they, they were so wild you couldn't chain them, you couldn't tie them up. They'd always break loose. They lived in, in the tombs, they were cutting themselves. Uh, Jesus cast out all those demons. Um, he healed the, the paralytic. You remember that story where uh, the friends tear a hole in the roof and lower the friend down and then forgave the man's sins and, and healed him? That already happened. Uh, there's the, the woman who'd been hemorrhaging for 12 years. She said, If I can just touch the, the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. That had already happened. He had raised the girl from the dead, for heaven's sake. He had healed the blind. Uh, he had cast out demons. There, there were all kinds of sick and, and, and demon-possessed people that would come to him. He would take care of them. In fact, if you'll look uh, earlier up in, in chapter 12, um, let's see. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm missing it. But earlier on in chapter 12, he has just cast out a demon which has made a man blind and mute. So here he's just performed this miracle and they said, you know what? Show us something really neat. Show us a, show us a sign. I know you, you've done all these things, even raised somebody from the dead, but that's just not enough from us, for us. In fact, his life fulfilled the prophecy in Isaiah. You remember when he went to Nazareth? The Bible says that he stood up in the synagogue, opened the scroll and, and read the passage about uh, the Spirit is upon me and, and the Lord's anointing me to, to, to preach the gospel to the poor and, and heal the blind and all these things. It's the passage that he used when John the Baptist said, uh, Are you the Messiah or should we look for somebody else? His life showed that he was the real deal. This is the same thing they said in Matthew chapter 16. He's just fed 4,000 people with a couple loaves of bread and a couple of fish. And they said, show us a sign. They wouldn't believe no matter what they saw. They were unbelieving. And he said, the, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. See, their problem wasn't that they were hard-headed. Their problem was that they were hard-hearted. And Jesus says, they'll get the sign of Jonah, and that's it. In other words, the sign of Jonah is sufficient. It's sufficient. Now I want to pause here for a moment. And tell you that Jonah was a real guy, and these are real historical events that are recorded in the Bible. Some people say, oh, well, Jonah must be an allegory because this is pretty incredible. Who can believe that a man, I can believe somebody running from God, but who can believe that a big fish would swallow a man and then spit him back up three days later? Who could believe such a thing? But just because it's amazing does not mean it's impossible. What does the Bible say? With God, 
Nothing's impossible. Now, your Bible, depending on your translation, it may record Jesus saying that Jonah was swallowed by a whale. Does your Bible say that? Some, some translations have that, some don't. The Greek word that's used there, it's only used one time in the Bible, but it means sea monster. It doesn't mean a whale like we think of a blue whale or something like that. And that's a good thing because a whale, even though they're huge animals, their mouths and their throats are so small, maybe you can get a man's leg in, but definitely not a whole body, naturally speaking. In the Mediterranean Sea where, where this uh, incident with Jonah happened, there are many sharks, white sharks, you know, the great whites, the man-eaters, and many people think that it was actually a, a great white or, or some other shark that swallowed Jonah because there have been accounts of a whole horse that's been found in a shark's stomach, two whole seals uh, in, in a, a shark's stomach, even a man that was found in a shark's stomach, whole. He wasn't chewed up, he was just swallowed whole. Whatever it was, the Bible says in, in Jonah chapter 1, it says that God prepared a great fish. So that means that God either specially created or did some customizing work on an already existing animal to swallow Jonah. So just because it's incredible doesn't mean that it's impossible. In addition to that, Kings, uh, 1 Kings chapter 14, I think it is, refers to Jonah, the son of Amittai. That's the same Jonah that's identified in Jonah chapter 1. Jesus refers to him as a real-life person. This is not an allegory. So a lot of times they'll be talking to people, they'll say, oh, do you believe that story about Jonah and that fish? I can't believe something like that. Yeah, it's the real deal. Anyway, so what is this sign of Jonah that Jesus talks about? Well, according to Luke chapter 11, verse 30, it's a parallel passage to this. Jesus says... Jonah himself is the sign. Jonah himself is the sign. In other words, his return from the fish was the sign. Now Jonah, you remember we talked about types of Christ like like Isaac being offered on the sacrifice by his father, you remember that? And, uh, and God will provide the sacrifice and all that. That is a type of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. Similarly, Jonah is a type of Christ. His seeming death, his burial, so to speak, in the sea, his resurrection, so to speak, from his fishy tomb, that all points ahead to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. See, Jesus' resurrection, he says, that's the sign of Jonah. He says, that's going to be the only sign that you need. You don't need to see all these miraculous things happen. The resurrection is proof enough that Jesus is who he says that he is. And so when, when, when Jonah came out of the tomb after three days, came out of the fish after three days, he was miraculously preserved. Jesus, when he came out of the tomb, those things, the one is a shadow, the other is the real deal. Jonah is the type, Jesus is the anti-type. He, he is the thing that the picture points to. And we need no other proof. And somebody says, well, I can't believe the resurrection. That's too incredible. You know what? That's a heart issue. That's not a head issue. Now, I don't know if, if you're like me, probably not. But if you looked at verse 40, you may have got kind of hung up. In fact, you may have, may have not even heard anything else I said past verse 40 when I was reading it. As what does he say? Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Does that kind of strike anybody? You say, well, what about this heart of the earth? 
That's just a Jewish way of saying he was inside there. He was in a tomb. But what stuck out to me was that he said three days and what? Three nights. But when did Jesus rise? On the third day. Now what in the world's going on here? Did anybody else catch that or was it just me? Nobody else did? Okay. Well, I guess that maybe I've, I've created a problem for you. Hopefully I can solve it to your, uh, to your satisfaction. The issue was not that Jesus made an error because he didn't. The Bible is not an error. The issue is we have one idea of precision. The ancient Jews had a whole other idea when it came to time. What I mean by that is the ancient Jews would count a part of a day as standing for the whole 24-hour period. So like in Genesis chapter 42, Joseph is in the prison. He talks to some of the guys. He says, after three days, you'll be released. But then he says, then the Bible says, on the third day, he was released. Okay, same thing with Rehoboam. Uh, all the people come to him, and, and you remember this, he was Solomon's son, and, and they came to him and said, we need some relief from all this, all these taxes that your father levied against us and all this stuff. And he said, come back after three days, I'll think about it. So we would think they come back on the fourth day, right? That's how we would do it. But the Bible says, on the third day, they came back. Um, in addition, keep your place here in Matthew chapter 12. Turn over to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, verses 63 and 64. Now this is after Jesus has been crucified. And um, these Pharisees came to talk to Pilate because they're concerned that Jesus' disciples are going to take him out of the tomb and say, Oh, he's alive! Just like he said, look at verse 63. Well, back up to 62. Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was alive, that deceiver said, After three days, I'm going to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until when? Until the third day. Now, if it was us, and Jesus says, according to verse 63, After three days, I'm going to rise again. We'd say, Keep somebody there at least until the fourth day. But they say, Keep a, keep a guard there until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come, steal him away, and say, He's risen, and life's deception will be worse than the first. I'm pointing all these things out to show you that the Jews of Jesus' day played a little looser with time than we do. They didn't have watches. They didn't have you know, the atomic clocks and all that stuff that's precise down to the however many portions of a second. They didn't do that. They said, okay, after three days I'm going to rise again. Another time Jesus said, I'm going to rise again on the third day. In Matthew chapter 12 he says, three days and three nights I'll be in the tomb. He's not making a mistake. Remember, he's talking to his enemies. His enemies knew what he had said in John chapter 2. He said, see this temple in three days, I'll raise it back up. You tear it down, I'll raise it back up in three days. They knew what he'd already said. They didn't say, ah, you contradicted yourself. They understood what he meant. Three days, I'll rise again. So the issue here isn't with the Bible, but the way that we count time versus the way they did. Okay, And, and even today, we kind of still do this, at least I've been guilty of it just recently. I do jujitsu. Unfortunately, I'm big and fat and have exercise-induced asthma, so when I need uh, air the most, I can't get it. And we had a different coach come in, and he liked to kill us, especially me, because he ran us and ran us and ran us. And then we did all these drills and stuff, and I had an asthma attack. And it was a little bit there, 
when I got home, it really kicked into gear. Well, I'd already used my inhaler, and I hate to use my in be dependent on it, so I just I just wheezed all night. Then the next day, I was still wheezing. And then the next day, I was still wheezing for like half the day. Well, I told somebody about it the other day, and I said, I had a three-day asthma attack because of that guy. Well, I didn't have a three-day asthma attack. It was a whole day and two parcels. Same thing here. Jesus was in the tomb all of Saturday, part of Sunday, part of Friday. He says, on the third day, I'll rise again. Here he says, I'll be three days and three nights in the tomb. It's, it's just a roundabout way of talking about things. Okay, So, because of the sign of Jonah, the, the resurrection, he says, that's sufficient. Therefore, people who reject it stand condemned. Looking in at, at chapter 12 and verses 41 following, he says, you'll first be condemned by the example of the Ninevites. And to us, that sounds weird because he says these Ninevites are going to stand up with you on the day of judgment and point the finger at you and condemn you. And that's weird for us. But in Jesus' day, the Jewish people, when they would talk about the end times, their discussions would often feature people like a poor person who would, who would convert and follow God. And on the last day, they would stand up and point the finger at the person who said, I'm too poor to follow God. And they, they would basically say, I was poor and I followed God. Or the, the rich person who says, I'm too wealthy. I don't need to follow God. And, and, and a wealthy person would stand up and say, I had as much money as you did, and I follow God. And so Jesus is using that, that same type of language here. And he says these, these Gentiles responded to God. They did what God wanted them to do. All they had was the preaching of a reluctant prophet and the sign of Jonah. Therefore, how much more guilty are you, Jewish people, who see me, I'm the Son of God, I'm doing miracles in your midst, you have me preaching, and you'll also get the sign of Jonah. How much more guilty are you if they had even less and they responded? Same thing with the Queen of Sheba. She came a long distance to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And once she came, she heard his wisdom. She looked and saw the things that were happening in his, in his kingdom, in his palace. She looked at that and she said, she, she, she responded to that. And he says, you've got this queen of Sheba, this Gentile who doesn't know God. And she's coming from a great distance and she saw what she saw. And she responded to the Lord. How much more so, when you don't have to go anywhere, I've come to you, I'm greater than Solomon. You hear all my wisdom. You can see all the things I'm doing. And one's greater than Sol one greater than Solomon is here with you. How much more guilty are you when these when these Gentiles who didn't have all the prophecies and stuff that you have didn't have the privileges that you have when they responded? How much less of an excuse do you have? And the answer is they don't have any excuse. Unbelief is inexcusable. So Jesus concludes his blasting of their willful unbelief with a parable. Now you've probably studied a lot of parables in your life. We all love the, the compassionate Samaritan or the prodigal son or you know even the, the mustard seed and the, the, the seed growing secretly with the farmer, the wheat and the tares. We love those parables. But you probably have never looked at this one and said, now that is a good parable. I love that parable because it's tough. In fact, his his point is is kind of easier to to understand 
than the parable is on the surface. Now, what is the point of it? Well, let, let's just read the whole, uh, the whole parable again. Verse 43. Now, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, now remember, he just cast out a demon, so he's just using, watch there. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. In Jewish theology, they believe that the, the deserts, the uninhabitable places, that was the abode of the demons. That's where they spent their time. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. And here's, here's the whole key to interpreting this parable. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying that reformation without Christ is going to leave you worse off than you were before. Trying to fix up your life without putting Jesus in it, it's not going to be any good. So let's work our way through this. Jesus, in verse 43, pictures a man who's possessed. This evil spirit leaves, evidently, of his own volition. And so this person is free from its evil influences. And he begins to straighten his life out. The Bible talks about uh, the, this, this, this house, the, this person. It's swept. It's clean. If you watch HGTV, they would say it's been staged. Everything's all painted. All the furniture's in the right place. Everything's looking good. So what's the issue? Who, who lives there? What's the verse say? Nobody. It's empty. So he's straightened all the things up on the outside. Maybe he stopped doing all these bad things, but he's got nobody living on the inside. He ain't, he, he's not got God living on the inside. And when the Spirit comes back, he says, Oh, that place looks good, and it's empty. I'm going to get my buddies, and we're all going to move in. And then the guy's in a real bad state of affairs. And Jesus says, You know what? That's what this generation is like, because... Do you try and fix all the stuff on the outside? You clean all the cup, the, the cup and the plate on the outside. You don't do anything to the inside. You've heard the gospel. John the Baptist has come. You have the Old Testament witnesses. I've come. You've heard all this stuff. And yeah, maybe you've changed the way that you act, but you haven't accepted me in your heart. You better watch out because your life is going to end up worse. Because one of these days, you, you do all these outward reformations, you'll one day fall back into the life that you lived before. And you'll end up being worse than you start out. The best illustration that I could think of for this is dieting. Has anybody ever done dieting and had the whole yo-yo effect? Isn't that what it's called? What happens? You say, boy, it's the new year. I've really put on some weight after Christmas. I'm going to drop some pounds. So you go to eating rice cakes and water. And you stick to it for a little while, and boy, you're looking good. The pounds are falling off. Oh, man, I'm going to have to get me some new clothes. I'm looking, ooh, yeah. And you start looking good. You get your new wardrobe, and everything's going good. But then what happens? Oh, about February, March, maybe June, you're saying, man, I'd sure like to go on a cruise. I'd sure like to... Eat some of that warm chocolate milking cake. Well, I'll just have a little bit. I've been eating rice cakes for six months. See, a little warm chocolate milking cake. And then what happens? Oh, I better have another one. I'm still pretty skinny. I'm still less than I was before. And then you have some more. And before too long, you're eating the same way that you were before. 
you gained it all back plus you think of all those months that you withheld so you eat extra right and then what have you done you started out here you drop down to here but then you go back up here you end up worse than you were before and that's what Jesus is saying spiritually you try to get rid of all these habits but you don't you change your habits for a little while but you don't put something good in its place you don't make a lifestyle change you don't put me in your heart you're going to end up doing the same things you did before and you're going to end up worse nature abhors a vacuum and our lives are always filled with something and if we get rid of the evil but don't put good in its place that evil's going to come back and it's going to end up being worse worse than before and he says that's what this generation's doing you're going through the motions you're fixing the outside but you're not taking care of the inside you're not putting me in your life. You're going to end up worse for it. So let's just bring this home. We see it all through Scripture. We see it in daily life. Unbelief always demands proof. Well, show me. Show me, show me, show me. Show me the money. Show me the evidence. But no matter what you tell people, no matter what you show them, no matter what evidence you have, it's never satisfied with that proof. They always want something more. Jesus cast out a, a demon. They said, well, show us that you're really the Messiah. Today, we have all the same proof that they did. Virgin birth, all these healings, all that. Plus, we've, we've, we've heard about, we've read about the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ. We have the, the testimony of, of God's work in the lives of believers for the last 2,000 years. We have the testimony of, of His work in our lives and the lives of people that we know. The problem is not with the evidence. The problem is with the heart. Now Jesus told the people of His day, you're all the more guilty because the people who had, who had a lesser experience of the truth responded and you have not. And I say to you, how much more so does that apply to us today? We have all this experience of the truth. We can come to church. Some, some of us have been to church thousands of times. We've heard the gospel hundreds or thousands of times. And yet, people still refuse to come to the, to the Lord. The problem is not with the evidence. The problem is with the heart. Somebody said, well, I can't do it. Baloney. Jesus said, not that you could not come to me. He said, you will not come to me. People decide whether or not they're going to respond to God. Somebody say, well, I, if God would just show me a sign from heaven, Lord, I'm here. Just If you want me to think that you're real, show me. Give me a sign. You know what? Jesus said you don't get all these signs. God's not a, God's not a circus act. You have the resurrection. And that's enough. That is enough to prove to any thinking person who's being honest that Jesus is the Messiah. And if you won't respond to that, you won't respond to anything. Your unbelief is inexcusable. So if you've never come to Him today, won't you do it today? Stop, stop putting it off. Accept His offer of salvation. And maybe you've already done that. Maybe you're a Christian. The sign of Jonah is for you too. You say, what? Well, what, what kind of relevance could that have for me as a believer? Well, it shows us that our faith isn't pointless. What did Paul say in, in 1 Corinthians 15? He said, if, if, if the dead are not raised, our faith is in vain. But because Jesus did raise, 
Our faith is not in vain. Because He lives, as we sang before, we too will one day live. Because He conquered the grave, one day we will conquer the grave. And we have the hope of heaven. And we know that one day He'll return to take us home. So what does the sign of Jonah mean for us? It means that we have hope. We all go through bad times in life. And I mean times when things are just... We're in that dark valley. But you know what? A valley is, a valley is in a shadow because there's light behind it. And we have that light. We have Christ in our lives. We have the hope of heaven. We have the assurance of salvation. And we can rest in that hope and we can look forward to that day and anticipate it. And if you're going through one of those times, take heart. Because this in the end, God's with you.